I had never in my life considered that anything would ever be too much for me. We were going to be dealing with, my goodness, like spiders and snakes and gorillas and elephants, you know, like, like the elements. And I remember there was like a little bit of panic that set in with me where I thought to myself, oh my gosh, are they going to think I'm a fraud? And I found a little paper bag, like a lunch bag. And I did the classic thing where I like put my mouth into the lunch bag and used it to like catch my breath. And telling myself, you know, you've got to do this. I'm Dr. Ray Wingrant, and this is a different kind of nature show, a podcast all about the human drama of saving animals. This season, I want to share my story. But I also want to introduce you to the other amazing wildlife scientists out there. Some of my friends who study hyenas, work with lizards, and even track sharks. The animals we study are great, but who we are as people and how that affects our work is just as interesting. And we're going to talk all about it. This is Going Wild. This was the very beginning of 2019, and I had finished my postdoc. I was several months into a research fellowship studying grizzly bears in Montana. And on the side, I was also an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University, and I was teaching principles of ecology to graduate students. And so while I was with Johns Hopkins, I pitched an idea to teach a field course to the graduate students. So it's kind of like, you know, a glorified field trip where we go somewhere in the world and I'd be able to teach wildlife ecology, you know, outside of the classroom. I was in search of stability in my career and also like to demonstrate how valuable I was. Being an adjunct faculty member is not a secure position, but if I was teaching like the most popular field course, then, you know, I would be in really good shape. So I was a little bit nervous when I pitched this idea to the department chair, but it actually ended up being so straightforward because basically he told me, hey, that's a great idea. You know, why don't you plan out the course and then circle back to me ASAP? So this was definitely an unexpected yes. And because it was a time in my life where I was branching out left and right, just do something new, do something a little risky, do something that you have no experience with. (laughs) Instead of designing a field course in a country that I had lived in or worked in, I decided, you know what? I've always wanted to study lowland gorillas in Central Africa. So this was like a big double opportunity. The idea was that I was going to start this field course for the students at Johns Hopkins, and then through this field course, I would have access to this site so I could start a gorilla research project. And this is a big deal because gorillas are super endangered in this area and their habitats are also threatened. 
So if I could start a research project there, it would essentially be one of the first studies in that area, learning about where the gorilla population was and what needed to be done to help them grow and thrive and remain protected. And so I found myself at the top of 2019, like, I guess having this moment where I realized, like, this might be that moment of inflection in one's career, you know, where things can skyrocket pretty rapidly. And so I spent tons of time putting together a proposal and a syllabus. And before I knew it, it was time to present this to both the department chair and the dean of the school. So I met with them and I gave them my vision of the project and they loved it. Like pretty much right away. I mean, this was something wildly different than any other field course they had. And so on top of approving the proposal, they also gave me funding to do a two-week recon trip to scout the field site, which was in a rainforest in the Congo Basin called the Jaw Faunal Reserve. And this way, I could make sure it was a good place not only to bring the grad students, but also for me to start my research project. And I was so excited about all of this from a career perspective. But, you know... What I didn't realize at the time was the toll that it was really going to take on my personal life and also on my mental health. It was around this time in my life that my personal and professional lives became almost fused together because I became a single mom in that year. had ended the relationship with my husband. I had moved to Washington, D.C. with my three-year-old daughter, Zuri, and started this single mom life. And my goodness, I had no idea, no idea how hard it was going to be. You know, in those six months that I had been living this new life, I had experienced depression like I have never before. There were a couple of moments where where I almost gave up just like entirely. It was like too hard. But I didn't. And I really credit Zuri with that. Oh my God, I didn't think I was going to get emotional. Um, But I often think like, I guess I often like really realize that she kind of kept me alive. And I'm so grateful for her and and for me for ultimately being you know strong enough to carry on and keep going and um you know in full disclosure one of the biggest reasons that my marriage had broken up was professional reasons it was because i wanted so strongly to have the opportunity to do things like go to the Congo Basin and start up a lowland gorilla study, you know, and that my husband like hadn't been supportive of that. 
But then, you know, like less than six months later, the opportunity is actually in my lap. And then all of a sudden I was in my kitchen, found myself on the floor, alone, having a panic attack. Being a single mom, going through a divorce meant that if there were to be a custody battle, I would need to be able to prove to a judge that I am the most responsible parent there is. And when I do have to travel, I make sure that, you know, the health, well-being and security of my child is top notch. If anything goes wrong, you know, it'll be used against you. Not only will, you know, your child suffer, but it could have ramifications for the rest of your lives. And, you know, this was my first long international expedition since I became a single mom. And I wasn't just going anywhere. I was going to this super remote place where there would be absolutely no contact, right? Like no Wi-Fi, no electricity, nothing. You know, I would be totally cut off from my daughter and from the people taking care of her the entire time. And I was scared. And I guess I had never in my life considered that anything would ever be too much for me. I had told myself, like, I'm better off a single woman and, you know, mothering on my own than I am partnered in this. And so then I had to walk that talk. And it was, I mean, I freaked out. I absolutely freaked out and crumbled. And then I found myself in this pathetic posture, you know, on the floor of my kitchen, of my apartment. And I found a little paper bag, like a lunch bag. And I did the classic thing where I like put my mouth into the lunch bag and used it to like catch my breath. You know, you've got to do this. You've got to try. You made this promise that you were going to keep going and keep trying. And you know what? Somehow I did. I pulled myself together. And I knew that what was actually going to get me through feeling so overwhelmed and soothe my mind would be to over-prepare, you know? So I just like hit the ground running and I started planning like crazy for this two-week expedition. I made sure everything was taken care of from all of the transportation to, you know, down to literally like how many pounds of rice I would need to pack in my backpack to hike into the field site in order to survive. And even more than all of the actual expedition logistics, the main thing that I had nailed down was exactly what I would need for my daughter to be safe and cared for while I was on the other side of the world. I had a whole system and plan in place for her to not just be cared for, but to be taken to preschool every day, settled in. I mean, I was on it, on it. 
And on top of all of that, obviously, the biggest part of this expedition was finding the gorillas, right? And I had done a little bit of primate work before. And so I had this expectation that it would be challenging, like to actually find these gorillas because they're so elusive. And then in this area, they hadn't even been studied yet. But after doing a ton of research, I learned about this group of people who are living just outside of this rainforest, and they're called the Baca tribe. So basically, if anyone was an expert on lowland gorillas in that area, it would be someone from that group. And so I tracked some folks down and asked if I could hire anybody as, you know, a guide on this project. And a couple of men agreed. And I was able to basically grill them in advance. I mean, just ask them tons of questions about what they knew about these gorillas. And everything I kept hearing was, yes, lowland gorillas are there. Yes, I've seen them in this area before. Yes, I'll be able to take you to them. And I was so excited because everything was going according to plan. And then, just a couple of weeks before I was going to leave for this expedition, I got word from the folks at Johns Hopkins that they actually had a rule that was going to make a major change to my plan. For any travel done under the Johns Hopkins University name, some full-time staff member had to be a part of it. And I couldn't think of a single full-time faculty member who would want to or would be able to accompany me, first of all, on such short notice, and second of all, to do research on gorillas in a rainforest in the Congo Basin. And I thought, after all of this effort, I think at the end of the day, it's not going to happen. And then, a few days later, I got a message from the head of the department at Johns Hopkins who said, oh, hey, I think actually I have a solution here. We just had a staff meeting, and you won't believe it, but someone from the staff actually volunteered to go on this adventure with you. I think you should come and meet her. And (laughs) I definitely don't want to sound like a jerk, but my first impression of Jen was prim and proper and small. (laughs) She's a very petite woman, short, red hair, all buttoned up. Just this, like, nothing like what I would have imagined for someone volunteering to come with me to the Congo Basin. Jen, who was being her full forthcoming self, shared with me that, you know, she had never traveled outside of the United States, save for one trip she made years before to Germany. She'd never been on an adventure, right? Like, not in the outdoors. Not on, like, a long backpacking expedition. We were going to be dealing with, my goodness, like, spiders and snakes and gorillas and elephants. And, you know, like, like the elements. I truly felt that she was not the right person for this expedition. But I didn't have another choice. There was too much on the line. And it wasn't like I could just find another volunteer in such a short amount of time. 
And so a few days later, Jen and I flew to Yaoundé, the capital of Cameroon, and started our adventure. So a little geography lesson here. I'm talking about the Congo Basin, which is a region that is humongous and it encompasses, you know, a good part of Central Africa and it spans across multiple countries. And one of those countries is also Cameroon. And that's where the Jaw Faunal Reserve is located. And so once Jen and I arrived in Yaoundé, we ended up taking a day-long drive to this little tiny village on the outskirts of the Jaw Faunal Reserve. And we were in place there so that the next day we could begin our expedition to hike to the field site. Jen and I woke up early in the morning Put on our clothes and our hiking boots and our backpacks, which probably weighed, I mean, a good 45, 50 pounds each. We walked out of the little hut that we had been staying in and we met up with our guides. And we mentally prepared ourselves to start this 15 kilometer hike, which is, you know, over nine miles to the field station where we'd be camping for the next two weeks. We got on the trail and the weather is hot and humid and it smells moist, you know, and it's kind of constantly drizzling. And if you were to look down, you would see that the, you know, the forest floor was just teeming with life, right? Like, like centipedes and giant ants and, you know, every kind of insect was just like making the forest floor move. There wasn't even a proper trail. So the guides were just, you know, hacking through this dense forest with a machete. It was the most intense hike of my life. And I noticed that Jen was less and less able to keep up. And at one point she called out to me and she said, Ray, and I heard her from a distance. And I walked back to her and she said, I'm so sorry, I don't wanna cause problems. It's my feet. She hadn't broken in her shoes. So she was kind of breaking them in at this rapid pace, you know, like on this hike and it, it hurt. And yet we had, I remember at this point, we had like something like six to seven hours left. And she even said, I might need to turn back. Like, if my feet hurt this bad already, I don't think I can keep going. And I thought about it, you know, like I was the leader on this expedition. And I sat down with Jen and I said, Jen, you got to decide right now, because if you can't keep going, we have to go back the other way immediately. And she started to cry. And through, like, 
a little bit of tears, she bravely said, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but we're going to keep going. I took a little bit off of her backpack, and I think we just kind of like reassembled everything so that she was carrying much, much less weight. And we kept going. And honestly, like, Jen's tears didn't stop the whole time. And six hours later, we finally made it to camp. And I called to Jen because I didn't see her yet. I said, you're almost here, Jen, you know, like to give her a last bit of hope. And oh my goodness, her face was full of tears and she was limping. She was limping to the end of the trail. And I told her that I had set up her tent and she limped all the way over there and she took off her shoes and her socks and there was blood and there were blisters and she was really not okay. You know, looking at her then, like outside of her tent, bandaging her own wounds is like, wow, like never in my life would I thought I'd be saying that, you know, this woman is a but she's a you know, like I'm impressed with her. She's a really good partner for this. I'm really glad we're here together. So we had an idea that lowland gorillas existed in this forest, but we needed proof. And the proof would be like visual observations, you know, like photos and data of where we found them and how many of them. And that way I could report back to Johns Hopkins that this is a viable area for a lowland gorilla study, like both for the field course and for the long-term research project that I'd be leading. And luckily we had these two guides with us and they were from the area and they told us that, yeah, they had seen these gorillas, you know, so now we just needed to find them. So a few days later, after Jen's feet had started to heal, One of our guides, Romeo, took us on this incredible hike to look for the gorillas. And he would stop me ever so often and kind of point, right? So he'd point up and show me a beautiful, beautiful bird, like a toucan. And we would see monkeys, you know, um, colobus monkeys would swing through the trees and, you know, and we'd hear their calls. And I mean, the amount of biodiversity was truly truly overwhelming but at the same time we didn't see any gorillas not even signs of gorillas you know like paw prints or a bed because they make these little beds you know like in the branches and the grasses and stuff and so we just kept trying And so it was around day four, and we still had seen no signs of gorillas, like not a single thing. And I remember there was like a little bit of panic that set in with me where I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I told Johns Hopkins University that there's a field site in the Congo Basin where there are lowland gorillas. Like, oh my gosh, are they going to think I'm a fraud if I don't come back with like a picture or some kind of proof of these animals? And I was like, what are we going to do? 
And as we were walking through the rainforest on these long hikes looking for gorillas, my mind would start to wander. And I think that it was probably around that time that I started checking in with myself about whether this place was the right place for me to build a new project. And I had every reason to think, yes, yes, it is. But there was something that was just kind of nagging me. But it was probably about a week in that we're walking and walking and walking. I was looking up at the beautiful tall trees and the guide stopped really, really quickly and he pointed down and he said, look, poop. You know, and I'm a bear biologist. I love poop, right? I look at poop all the time. Like poop tells us so many things. It not only tells me, you know, the species was like literally right here. Like I could take a GPS point to say like this animal was here very recently. So they're alive, they're well, they're thriving, they live here. But I can also then like, you know, dissect the poop and figure out what the animal was eating. And so, you know, poop isn't super flashy (laughs) or exciting always, but it is, you know, really, really important data. And so I looked down and I saw the poop, but I didn't necessarily know what I was looking at. Is this buffalo poop? Is this, you know, like chimpanzee poop? Like, what is it? And he said it was gorilla poop. And so this poop was like, you know, fresh and like warm. I know this is so gross, but it's true. And so that meant that like, I don't know, the gorilla could have been like watching us. It could have been very, very, very close. But just like all the days before and for the rest of the expedition, we never actually ended up seeing a gorilla with our own eyes. And it's funny. We came halfway around the world looking for evidence of these gorillas, and then all we ended up finding was this poop. But even though it was just poop, it was still that proof that gorillas were actually living in this rainforest. And, you know, they were here all around us the whole time. And so we did have enough evidence to bring back to Johns Hopkins. And even though we didn't get to see a gorilla, Jen and I were able to return home feeling really optimistic. When I got back, I wrote a big report about the expedition and presented it to the chair and the dean of the school. And they were really impressed. And they were like, okay, great. We would love to formally give you the opportunity to teach this field course. And of course, I was thrilled. I mean, this is why I had gone on the expedition and even done all this, right? And I... I don't know why, but I started thinking back to that moment when Jen and I had first arrived at the field site in the Congo Basin. And I was watching Jen bandaging her bloody feet. And I was really seeing this woman who was pushing herself. And of course, being challenged can be totally rewarding. And I think for Jen on this expedition, it absolutely was. But when I was reflecting on my own life and the way that I was challenging myself, 
it's like, God, it's almost like my whole life was these bloody feet, you know? Like I wanted to do the most. I wanted to explore a new place and study a new animal and take on a new project and do it all as a single mom. And I was proud of myself, but I was also experiencing so much anxiety and stress. And I thought about this opportunity in the Congo Basin that I had worked so hard for. And I thought, yeah, I could do amazing work there. But at that moment, it didn't feel quite worth it. Does my whole life need to be a challenge? Like, what if I give myself the permission to scale back? What if all of this were easy? And I surprised myself and I went back to, you know, like the department chair and I explained, you know what, there's a lot that has changed in my personal life. And I know that I came to you all with this idea (laughs) and I asked for this funding to go out and do this thing. But the way I feel right now is that this isn't the right choice for me to make. I don't think I should teach this course after all. And instead of canceling it, I did come with a solution. One of the guides, Romeo, was actually interested in wildlife ecology and had been studying it. And he had been the one who had taught us the most about that area. And, you know, I realized that everything these students would be learning from the forest, they would be learning from him anyway. So I recommended that he be the one to teach the field course. And the folks at Johns Hopkins agreed. And a group of 12 students went to the Congo Basin to study with Romeo. And, you know, they had the rule that they would still need, you know, a full-time Johns Hopkins, you know, professor to accompany. And... Believe it or not, it was Jen who volunteered. Jen went and the students went and it was a huge success. They loved it. And I never regretted saying no to teaching this course because it didn't as much seem like I was saying no to the Congo Basin opportunity. It felt more like I was, you know, passing the baton, you know, to someone else. And what I truly couldn't have predicted was that passing the baton was actually giving me what I needed, you know, which was a a permission to do less. And, you know, once I let go of this idea that my whole life needs to be a struggle, you know, basically to prove that I'm working hard and to prove that I'm deserving of success... Well, that's when success started coming to me, you know, more easily. Like now I live within an hour of my field site. I don't have to cross continents just to go to work. And I'm leading a groundbreaking research study on large carnivores that have never been studied before. You know, my life just got easier and more stable. You know, I'm not a single mom anymore. I have a partner who's super supportive of me and my work and of our family. And, you know, 
we even had another baby together. But uh, <laughs> that's a story for another time. listen to season two of Going Wild with Dr. Ray Wingrant. We want to thank all of our guests for sharing their amazing wild stories. And you, our dedicated listeners, for coming back for season two. And now we want to hear from you. What did you think of this season? What was your favorite episode? What kinds of stories do you want to hear in season three? Let us know. You can leave us a review on your favorite podcast listening app, or you can send us an email at naturepod at wnet.org. You can also get updates and bonus content by following me, Dr. Raywin Grant, and PBS Nature on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find more information on all of our guests this season on each episode's show notes. And you can catch new episodes of Nature Wednesdays at 8, 7 central on PBS, pbs.org slash nature, and the PBS video app. This episode of Going Wild was hosted by me, Dr. Raywin Grant. Production by Caroline Hadelaxano. Danielle Broza, Nathan Toby, and Great Feeling Studios. Editing by Rachel Aronoff and Jacob Lewis. Sound design by Carriette Harmon. Danielle Broza is the digital lead, and Fred Kaufman is the executive producer for Nature. Art for this podcast was created by Ariana Bowlers and Karen Brazell. Special thanks to Amanda Schmidt, Blanche Robertson, Jane Lisi, Chelsea Satkamp, and Karen Ho. Going Wild is a new podcast by PBS Nature. Nature is an award-winning series created by the WNET Group and made possible by all of you. Funding for this podcast was provided by grants from the Anderson Family Fund, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and PBS. PBS.